0: All right, get all my stuff set up here. Well, you know, going through uh, this pandemic and all the various different stages of lockdowns and all the different lockdowns, especially that we've felt or that we've had here in Manchester, um, it should be no surprise to know that mental health issues have kind of skyrocketed. They've, went, they've gone through the roof. Uh, that's... It shouldn't be a very surprising thing. That's like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the um, one of the headlines I read in the Guardian recently was that stress, anxiety, and depression levels soar, um, which will make you stressed, anxious, and depressed when you read that article as well. <laughs> well, basically, you're in the minority if you don't experience mental health issues. Like, if if you don't experience mental health symptoms, uh, mental health um, illness symptoms, you're you're in the minority. A big study that took place in the early stages of lockdown, let alone who knows what it might be like now, is 57% of those who took part reported symptoms of anxiety, and 64% of people uh, recorded common signs of depression. And that number gets higher from people with LGBTQ backgrounds. Of course, the number gets really super high if you're talking about people who are homeless. Add to that job insecurity, the ongoing social isolation, the difficulties that come from coming out of the pandemic, which are actually more difficult than going into lockdown. And really, it's no surprise. Of course, all of this is coming on top of a situation that wasn't great to begin with. It's not like the UK or you know, most of the Western world was doing great with mental health to begin with. Suicide continues to be the single biggest killer of men under the age of 45 in our country. The single biggest killer is suicide. If I was to die tomorrow, not that I would take my own life, but if I was to die tomorrow, statistically, it would be because I killed myself. See, mental health is not an individual problem as much as it's our problem, whether we experience that or not. It's our problem as a society. And we need more doctors. We need need more nurses. We need more hospitals working on this. We need more organizations coming alongside other people. We need more mental health workers, more community organizations that can help prevent some of these issues. And we also need, in this slice of the pie, we also need more churches calling people out of darkness into the wholeness that only Jesus offers. And even if you aren't afflicted by serious mental illness at the moment all of us are in danger of being blown over by the difficulties and circumstances of life so wherever you are in your own mental state wherever that might be all of us i think if we're honest with ourselves all of us are spiritually fragile people and that's the kind of people that peter's writing to spiritually fragile people thank god for that he's not writing to rock stars he's not writing to like theological giants he's writing to normal people who existed 2,000 years ago, and normal people still exist today. And in this little section here of of 1 Peter, we see that Peter is teaching us how to be whole when our world is torn. When our world is torn up through various kinds of things, we learn one aspect of what it means to be whole. And we so easily give ourselves to things that aren't going to return the favor uh, careers can be great, but they're not going to give you all that you need. Houses can be great, and they're not going to give you all that you need. Families are great, but they're not going to give you all that you need. And in doing so, if we give ourselves completely to these things that are actually kind of good by themselves, but maybe not ultimate, if we give ourselves, uh, our, our whole selves to these things, we miss out on the benefits from giving our whole selves to Jesus first. And this is the crazy thing. If we give our whole selves to Jesus first, what we find is then we can actually interact with our families better than we could before or our careers better than we could before, or navigate buying a house better than we could before, all the things that we go through and we'll be freaked out about. So if you are stressed out, if you're anxious, if you're burned out, if you're depressed, maybe some of you might be, I don't know, you think maybe some of you might be that way? Probably all of us, if we're honest. These are words from Jesus to us. Come to me, all who are weary, all who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says to every single human. Come to me. I'm going to take those things, and what I'm going to give you is rest. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you a wholeness. So for all of us, and for all the different parts of us that need to hear those words today, that need Jesus' rest, these words are for you. These words are for me. These words are for you. Jesus takes our anxiety. And he walks us through, and in doing so, he gives us a wholeness that that didn't exist before. And he not only relieves our anxiety, but lifts us up above it. And the reason Jesus can do this is because unlike everything else and everyone else out there, Jesus took with him to his death all those little deaths that we experience in our lives. All the burdens, all the worries, all the things that keep us up at night all the anxieties, he took them upon himself and he killed them and they stayed dead. They're in the ground. Those things never rise again. Those things don't get a resurrection. And Jesus, unlike anything and everyone else, didn't stay dead. He is the one who did rise again and he gives his new life to us. The more that we surrender to that new life, the more that we get the grace that only he gives. Uh, the more we can experience his wholeness, even when life is crazy or tragic or overwhelming. And this by itself isn't a medical cure for ongoing depression, but it is how to be whole even when you are depressed. And the first thing that Peter leans into here is humility. And so we're going to talk a lot about what, what, this, what that word means. We're going to talk about maybe some things what it may not mean, but some things what it, what it does mean and three main things we're going to look at what it means to be humbled first what it means to keep that way of life going and third what it means to stand fast together Uh, and so this is the end of the letter uh, and um, will kind of like be the wrap-up of this whole series and Peter knows this is also his the end to his letter here I mean he doesn't know if he's going to write another letter to this church or not Um, so he's ending this letter on on a bit of a high note or at least what he seems to be most emphatic about and the first thing that we see is in verse 6. Uh, by the way, if you have your Bibles or an app, keep it open. And if you need one, there is one in that back um, table there. Um, so look at verse 6. The very first thing we, we, we read is, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. There's a lot of stuff going on in that verse. Um, let's talk first, though, about that first, those first two words. Your translation, as mine just did as I read it, might say, humble yourselves. But I have a little bit of a problem with that. Because, as amazing as our translations are, and 99.9% of the time, especially in uh, versions like the New International Version, they're great, they're fantastic, and we shouldn't really question them. But I have a little bit of a problem with this because the Greek verb behind this humble yourselves is a little bit different than what might come through in the English. Uh, this first, the first thing is this Greek verb is passive. It's not active. It's not saying to... Uh, actively humble yourself, is saying to be humbled, to receive a humbling, to surrender to some level of humbling. That's a little bit different than what might come through there. Uh, so an active verb would be like throw the ball. A passive verb would be like get the ball thrown to you. So this is a humble yourself. is really like be humbled. There's an action involved, but um, the subject, which is us, means we're, we're not the primary movers. We're receiving something here. Uh, And that doesn't necessarily come through. The other things that do come through are, uh, it's plural, so it's a humble yourselves, like together, not individually, like be a humble, be humbled together. But then, um, and it's also, it's an imperative, it's a command. Peter is telling us, he's commanding us to be passively humbled by something, someone else. Really what this is saying is be humbled, surrender to humility. And this is being done to us. By God's mighty hand. Surrender to God's humbling in your life. Allow God's humbling action in your life. So we'll just spend a little bit of time what it looks like to be humbled, and we'll see how this will connect to anxiety. We'll get there in a moment. Um, but first, what we do find is a therefore, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. So if you look back of like what's that therefore, therefore, um, we look at verse five. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God gives favor to those who are humble, and God opposes to everyone who is not humbled. That's a good main reason to submit to humbling. I don't want God to oppose me, so maybe I'll be humbled by him. Also, I want God's favor in my life too, so maybe I'll be humbled by him. If you aren't humbled, God opposes you. He opposes all those parts of your life that are not submitting to that, to that humbling. That's not a good thing. And if you are humbled, he's blessing you. That, that is a good thing. Uh, some more aspects here. Again, we're humbled under God. To be humbled under God is to surrender to him. It's easy to surrender to other people. I'm just kind of give in. It's easy to surrender to, to your career. Your boss will love that and you'll get praise for it. Um, it. But surrendering to God is something different because it's releasing all that we think we know and asking to be led by him, to be taught by him to follow the ways that he's marked out for us, even when it isn't easy, even when it might offend us, even when it doesn't seem like the right thing in our in our eyes. And this mighty hand of God, if we allow ourselves to be humbled, this mighty hand isn't there to smite us. What does it do? It lifts us up. I don't know about you, but maybe you think God is out there just to get you. And he's not. He, I mean, he could. He opposes you. But even, if, even in his opposing you, his mighty hand here is so that it will lift you up. That's an amazing thing to know. This is the upside down thing about how God works. The way down for us is the way up. We surrender to God, we're humbled by him, and he lifts us up. And the other thing about lifting us up here, the end of that verse there, is in due time. When you need it the most, and we don't always know when we need it the most, because we might think we need it the most always in every second. Like, I need it right now, God, what are you doing? I need to be lifted up now, but God knows. You don't know really all the time when you need to be lifted up. We might get impatient with that, but God will lift you up in due time. That requires a trust that he knows what's best for us, and that he knows the timing that's best for us as well. And I don't really like that, because I just want it on my own time. God, what are you doing? Be a servant to me, please. Now, all this, I mean, it sounds really good. And I mean, it also kind of makes sense when you think about it. If God lifted you up when you were living, however you think you should live, there's a possibility that that would reinforce the idea that you know what's best. And so you're going to go down, that you're in control of your life. You're going to go down this path of like, oh, well, God's going to lift me up like regardless of what I do. And in, in my own timing, if he was to actually do that, he would be um, reinforcing your own way of living. And that would hold you back from living in the way that God's called us to live, which is actually the best way for us to live, where we can experience wholeness in its fullness. Surrendering to God, um, also, um, we might think, if, if, that's, if that's how God's going to do it, like, oh, we just, he'll just you know, lift us up whenever we want him to, we might think then surrender to God is just an option. It's not the only way to live. It's like an optional way to live. Like, maybe I surrender a little bit. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing You know, get the tick the surrender box or something like that. But God loves us so much that more than seeing circumstances change in our lives, he wants to see our hearts change first. And I get angry at that sometimes because I just want my circumstances to change, and I want to keep my heart the way it is. Thanks, God, very much. What are you doing there? But he wants our hearts to change because he wants our hearts to reflect his heart. And all that he does works towards that end. All that he does works towards that end. So that's why it's good for us to be humbled by him. We're humbled under God, and he lifts us up in due time. Richard Lovelace wrote uh, an influential book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life, which by itself sounds impressive. Dynamics of Spiritual Life, Ooh, what is that about? Um, there's this quote on page uh, 117 that I think fits really well with what Peter's saying here. It says, much of our growth in grace is quietly affected by events and conditions God brings into our lives to perfect his work in us. Oftentimes when we come to a difficult circumstance, a difficult time in our life, or, or an area that requires us to like obey to God or, or, or obey Him or, or disobey Him, uh, we want that circumstance removed. But I think often when we see in the Bibles, God gives us those circumstances so that we would be humbled and so that we would follow Him. So sometimes He's not going to lift that circumstance. Sometimes He might. Sometimes He's not going to. But there's a reason for that because God is always working for our good, that our hearts May reflect his. Avoiding the situations that will humble us, or attempting to avoid God's humbling altogether by living how we want, that will leave us as less full people, less whole people, incomplete. And God wants us to be whole. Now, before we kind of go on through the rest of these verses here, um, let's take a moment to talk about what it means to be humbled by God. Because I think we, if we stop there. People are like, yeah, that's good, let's be humble, but like, what does it actually mean? Or, or how do we be humbled by God outside of like, you know, an hour on a Sunday? Well, humility is thinking of someone else before you, putting someone else before you. And applying this to God means putting Him before everything else in our lives. Now, I've seen a fair amount of Christianized ways to avoid this, and we all do this, so let's just maybe talk honestly here, and there's maybe just three main things, I think, all of us can, can do to be humbled by God. The first thing, to be humbled by God requires uh, us to be with us, requires you to be with his people. You can't be humbled by God if you aren't with his people. And at the very least, this means being part of Sunday worship gatherings. If this time isn't a priority in our lives, if you follow Jesus, if this isn't a priority in your life, it will be very difficult for us to be humbled by God. And this is why God's plan is for his people to gather together to celebrate together. We didn't come up with this as a church. God did. That's why we're doing it. And part of being humbled by God means organizing your life differently around him. And that can be kind of annoying and difficult at times. That means being present with his people. Now, I love that we have the live stream option. I'm really glad that, um, especially if you're watching now, that you're uh, joining us uh, from afar. But the downside of of having that long term is that it, it might be easy for us to think, but that's a one-to-one substitution for what we get to do in person. Now, there's no, there's, I'm not putting like some kind of like, um, anxious timeline on people. If, if you're not really sure about Christianity and this is like you know, a slow ramp up into investigating it, that's fantastic. That's great. Keep doing that. But there's something different going on here than what goes on on the screen out there. It's just different. It's a good stopgap, especially when we couldn't meet in person. It was great to be able to be on screens. Um, I say great, but I think we were all over it quite quickly. <laughs> But it really, all of that pales in comparison to being present. So being present with people is a massive part of how to be humbled by God. To be humbled by God requires us to be in the word and to be in prayer. I mean, how can you be humbled by someone whose mouth you keep shut? If this is how your Bible looks all the time, you're never going to hear God's words. Every time we do this, God opens his mouth and we hear his words. And those are the words that we're humbled by. We also have many things to say to him, and that's really good. He wants us to talk to him. That's what prayer is. And we talk to him about his word. Say, like, God, I read this. I don't really like this. <laughs> what are you doing here? Or I like this a lot, and I want, I want more of this in my life. Will you help me? We talk to him about uh, his word. We talk to him about our lives. We talk to him about our problems. Talking about the friends that we care about, the people that we care about. But if we withhold ourselves from him by not praying, we'll keep God at a distance and we'll keep him cold, or at least attempt to. And we aren't going to be humbled by God like that, or at least we won't want to be. I don't want to be humbled by some kind of cold, distant king that wants to smite me with his mighty hand. Thirdly, to be humbled by God requires us to participate together. It is possible to be with his people it's possible to be in his word, uh, praying to him, and not do anything at the end of the day. It's very possible. We can just be heads on sticks, walking around. We know a lot. Maybe we pray a lot by ourselves, but we don't do much more than that. We can try and not humble ourselves completely, and only humble parts of us, like maybe our mind or whatever, but then we miss out on truly being humbled, like as whole people. And this is also where mystical communities become a context to work some of this out. And let me say, None of this Christian life, of any of the stuff on here, none of this is meant for us to go alone. We, it's, not, it's meant for us to do this together. And so this is the big first point. Be humbled. It is better for you. It allows you to love other people well, and God will lift you up. And the rest of Peter's words here flow from that first big point. So we're going to learn uh, how anxiety is connected here in a moment. So if the big takeaway is to be humbled, God will tell us what a life of ongoing humility looks like. And I think that's what the rest of these verses are about, what it means to keep this life going. And right off the bat, what we have here, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. An aspect of being humbled is to cast your anxiety on the Father. You're not going to cast your anxiety on someone you don't trust. You have to trust that person. That's what it means to be humbled first. Take that weight off your shoulders and send it away to him. And we get to do this because he cares for us. Again, that mighty hand is used for something. used for receiving our anxieties. Last week, we looked how Jesus was the chief shepherd, how he takes care of us. That's one of the things God loves to do. He loves to take care of us. We're not twisting his arm when we ask him to take care of us. We're not twisting his arm when we ask him to forgive us. We're not like, oh, God, please, if I was a stronger person, then I wouldn't doubt. He, we're not twisting his arm when we bring our doubts to him. He loves doing that. He loves caring for us. That's an aspect of, of, of his character, of who he is. He's not begrudgingly loving us. He loves to love us. He existed in Trinity before the world even existed, and which means love within the Trinity, within the Godhead. It's just a part of who he is. God can't not love. And not just the small things, not just the big things. All our anxiety, everything you worry about, from stuff that keeps you up at night to all the little twinges you might get at work here and there, money, relationships, careers, partners, kids, we all have plenty of legitimate things to be anxious over. And we will have them. But God wants them. We're going to have them. God wants them. God wants to use those burdens to be examples in your life of how much he loves you. He wants to take those anxieties off you for you to live in such a way you wouldn't be able to otherwise, and then you get to see how much God loves you. He's going to use those anxieties to show you how much he loves you. We aren't zapping him of his joy when we come to him. We're zapping him of his joy when we don't. He's most joyful when you do come to him. And a huge way, maybe the biggest way that we can keep this life of being humbled going is through sending our anxieties to Jesus. Casting, sending, like a, um, I don't fish very much. I maybe fish, I don't know, 10 times in my entire life. But if, if you cast in a way that someone who knows how to do it, you send the bait or whatever the thing is, the hook. I'm, I'm so out of, my, out of my depth. It's not even my notes, as you can tell. Um But you're supposed to send it really far away. You don't just cast it right here. You cast it out as far away as that line will let you. There's a reason we end our services responding to God's blessings. All our problems, what do we do with them? We don't keep them. All our problems, we keep on them but put a face of Christian happiness on the outside. No, we send them to the cross of Christ. We send them to the cross. We say that every single week together. We need to be doing that all the time. We send them to the cross of Christ, where it dies, never to rise again. There's some more actions that we have here in uh, verses 8 and 9. Peter's kind of giving out, since you've read these, lo- these you know, previous f- four chapters, here is now what you ought to, how you ought to live. Uh, and we're told to be alert. We're told for us to have clear heads because there are dark spiritual forces out to destroy us, out against us, devouring who we are. I mean, this might be familiar. In um, chapter 2, verse 11, Peter wrote, um, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So in one way, there's stuff inside of us, our own simple desires to get a wage war against us. But what Peter's talking about here is, is the devil, like the, uh, um, the epitome of everything dark and spiritual and anti-human is out there to devour us, to get us. So because the devil is real, because we believe that he's real as Christians, we're alert. If a, lying is, if a lion is prowling around in this room, we'd all be alert. We'd be really alert. It reminds me of a quote I first heard in The Usual Suspects. I don't, it's, it's kind of a quote that's been cobbled from a few other sources, but um, this is how it goes in The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. If, there, if we don't believe there's a lion here, we're just going to be lazing around, hanging out, sitting like normal people. If the devil doesn't exist, we don't have to be alert. If you aren't alert with a prowling lion around, you become very easy prey. I've seen at least a few nature documentaries where I know what happens. And the way to resist this evil being is to stand firm in the faith. We stand against the devil, against all darkness by standing firm in the faith. That means we must be rooted in it. To not be uh, rooted in the faith is to be taken in by conspiracies and half-baked ideas, but rooted in the historical orthodox faith that God teaches in his word. And what God is saying here is that Christians kind of need to be rebels a bit. We need to rebel against the kind of natural ways of the world sometimes. Part of that rebellion uh, against, is against everything that is going to rob us of our wholeness. To join in that kind of resistance, we need each other. There's no resistance that's existed just with one person. That's just like a, a weird outlier. But a resistance is a group of people. Resistance is a plural reality. If you've ever seen a horror film, you know, when that one person goes up the stairs, they're not coming down. Right? The evil, freaky thing that crawled out of the TV or everything happened is going like, to kill them. They're gone. And that's the illustration of the lone Christian. If we do this by ourselves, we go up the stairs by ourselves, we're going to be devoured. It may not be immediately, but eventually we're not going to be living out in the way that God wants us to. We are not alone. We're not made for that. So let's not act like it. And now as we go about our lives in this way, God is at work. If you look at verses uh, 10 and 11, This is kind of like God's perspective in this ongoing life. In verses 10 and 11, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffer for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong. He's gonna make you firm. He's going to make you steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. See, God is, uh, this is how God works um, because he's gathering for himself this rebellion of people. It is the God of all grace and this God has called you, you lot, you plural, called you to glory, eternal glory. Yes, we're going to suffer now. We all know that. The, the Bible's very honest with, and open with that. But this is just a blip in the beautiful story that Jesus is even now crafting for you. We might experience now, anxiety now. Yes, we will. One day, we aren't. Maybe we experience depression now, or at least definitely the symptoms of it. Yes, we will. One day, we won't. We may not be fully cured by every single pain, every single um, difficult feeling, every single difficult circumstance, but one day we will. And he is the God of all grace now and forever. So we give him all our anxiety today. And as we are alert, clear-headed, resisting. What is this God doing? He's working through our work. He's the one who's making us strong, firm, and steadfast. We have our job to kind of work in the way that God wants us to, to walk this path, but he's the one who's bringing that to us. Jesus himself is restoring you. He's making you strong. He himself is making you firm. He himself is making you steadfast, immovable through the power of the eternal God himself at work in your circumstance, at work in your life right now. We aren't left to this alone. He works through our work. So that means the Christian life is active and dependent. So we do both of those things. If we're just active and not dependent, we think it's all about us. If we're just dependent and not active, we're not doing anything, and we just kind of sit around. But it's both of those things at the same time, active and dependent. We work in anticipation of him working through it, as he's telling us here. That's what being part of the resistance has to be like. We study the Bible, so he'll make us steadfast. We don't rely on being steadfast ourselves. We also can't expect to be steadfast if we never study the word. These two ideas, being active and dependent, are connected. And being part of this new way of living, this this new humanity, is also how we deal with anxiety. We can't expect to be magically delivered through anxiety. God has given us means that he wants us to go through, and through those means he's going to show himself to be who he is, the loving God who lifts us up with his mighty hand. And to bring up the previous kind of uh, application points that all apply equally here. We have to be with his people. We have to be present with each other in order to keep this going. We have to be in the word and prayer in order to keep this going. We have to be participating in the lives of other people and in the work that he's called us to in order to keep this going. And the only way to be part of the resistance is for these things to be true in our lives. And then lastly, what we're called to is how kind of Peter finishes this letter Uh, in the end of verse 12, is to stand fast in it, it being the true grace of God, to stand fast together in it. It's another command, another imperative, another plural imperative. All of you stand fast together in God's grace. He says that what he's written, along with his friend Silas, is a witness to the true grace of God. Stand fast together in the true grace of God. Standing fast, his feet, both feet, like firmly placed, firmly stuck in, expecting some kind of like resistance, but your feet are firmly there, so you're not going to fall over. Having our feet firmly placed anywhere else, or even like weakly placed, it's going to lead us away from wholeness. Standing fast in his grace is what gives us the peace, the wholeness, the rest, that that, um, complete and overwhelming whole peace that we also desperately need. And the only way we can stand fast is if we do this together. And by being sure, we're standing faith fast in his grace, which he tells us in his word. If we stand fast in our work, we don't get peace. We get anxiety. We get a lot of anxiety. Try and stand fast alone. You're not going to get peace because you're not going to be able to pull everything together. You're going to get anxiety. If you stand fast in our family first. Before anything, we don't get peace. We get anxiety. If we stand fast in our relationships, we don't get peace; we get anxiety. To the extent that we stand fast in God and in His grace, as explained here in His Word, we will experience peace. Peace here is more than the absence of wars; more than the absence of bad things. It's also the presence of everything that's good. It's this full orb, flourishing, a thriving, a wholeness. The grace that we are standing fast in is nothing less than the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit together, all together, the work of eternity. See, the Father sent a plan from the beginning of time, before the world was even made, Ephesians tells us, that this plan was set for his creation to experience being who they were made to be, whole creatures found in his grace. Jesus came to earth to make this happen through his death and resurrection, because we tried to derail that story. We tried to mess it up. Jesus came to earth to make sure to win for us and for himself uh, that to be able to go through. And the Holy Spirit is now working in all those who follow Jesus, empowering us to live in exactly this way that we learn about today. We can't be humbled under God if God himself isn't working in us. And with Jesus' death, our deaths. With Jesus' life, our new life. The cost for this reality was God to give up. Himself, Jesus humbled Himself. He didn't need to. He did. Why? Why? Jesus kept it going. He, He he didn't stop. He kept it going. Jesus stood fast when it would have been a million times easier, and even maybe even right at times for Him not to, for our sake. And when that life, Jesus' life, is at work in ours, only then can we really be humbled, because we don't have it even within ourselves to be humbled under God. Only then can we keep it going. Only then can we stand fast. And that's what we are going to eat and drink to in a moment. We remember what Jesus has done. We look forward to what he will do in our lives now and also in eternity. Wholeness, even when